In the days leading up to the championship game, Clemson, South Carolina, a town nestled in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, at the shores of Lake Hartwell, was rinsed in magenta and orange. Along College Avenue, the narrow drag through the town's four-block downtown, flags and banners festooned storefronts as men, women, and children, outfitted in orange hats and orange suspenders and purple paws painted on their noses, bounced giddily along. A spirited tailgating scene, overflowing pints and fried pickles leaking grease before noon, was a daily occurrence at the Esso Club, the famous filling station turned outdoor watering hole. The Tigers are in the Natty Championships, read the dusty marquee above the old Tiger shop. So Clemson is the higher seed wearing the all-orange home uniforms, but Alabama will get the football first to begin this championship game. And with Nick Saban... In January of 2016, Sports Illustrated writer Albert Chen was sent to the Clemson-Alabama College Football National Championship game. Chen had spent the previous two weeks in South Carolina, neck deep in purple and orange. He talked to the current players, former players, coaches, locals, family members, and had begun writing the story for when Clemson won the national title. The only catch? They didn't win. More guys to the right, kicks it that way. Ball takes a kangaroo hop, and it'll go out of bounds, and Alabama will have it one kneel down away from a national title. Alabama back on top of the college football world. For every national championship story that has appeared in Sports Illustrated and has been a cover story, there is an alternate story that lives somewhere on the Sports Illustrated servers or on someone's laptop, maybe desktop, maybe exists as a hard copy in someone's desk from 15, 20 years ago of the alternate story on the team that lost the game because in each of those scenarios, there are two stories that are written where one team wins and one team loses. For this episode of The Narrative, I wanted to take you step-by-step step through the process of reporting a piece of sports journalism. After interviewing some of the best sports writers in the business, the only rule I learned, it has to be good. Deadlines, story arcs, interviews are as erratic as a bouncing onside kick. But what separates sports stories you remember from the box scores you read and toss away is simply hard work. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. The 2016 Clemson National Championship cover story isn't the only one Chen's had spiked. You can find a wealth of stories and potentially put together many, many great magazine issues that are full of spiked stories. They were spiked for a reason, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had plenty of stories that never saw the light of day. Sports Illustrated has been running since 1954, and in that time, the deadlines have become shorter, the news cycle has quickened, and the methods of distribution have shifted online. But ultimately, what we provide is the same thing. Well thought out, in-depth sports storytelling. And that kind of storytelling takes time. One, two. Swing and a miss, struck him out on a curveball. Kept going to that, finally got his man. It starts with a pitch. Like a curveball with the perfect late break, a story pitch is only as successful as its delivery. You have to convince the room, the ones paying you, that it's a good idea. 
the pitch process really is beneficial for everybody because it really kind of crystallizes why this should be a 2,000-word story or this should require some resources for travel. But the pitch process for, for me is really looking for one small nugget into a story that is a lens into a subject that people maybe already think that they know or a subject that people think that they're already familiar with. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you are kind of like Don Draper in a pitch room, very, feeling very passionate about this thing that, in those first few sentences, really kind of selling what you want to do. The pitch room usually has fewer men swirling highballs than madmen. But like the pitch meetings at Sterling Cooper Advertising Agency, convincing your colleagues is only half the battle. You're acting as kind of a travel agent slash PR guy in terms of selling the story that you want to do to the subject or to the team that you need assistance from to make it happen. I mean, a lot of times we're at the mercy of athletes or teams to get the access and to really be allowed to have sort of the time in order to do the story that we want to do. So you're filling a lot of different roles where you come up with the idea, then you have to sell the idea to various people, and then you have to execute it, which is an entirely different beast. Teams, leagues, and representatives control a sports journalist's most valuable resource, players. The more time spent with a player, the more likely they are to open up, providing different angles into the story. To get that kind of familiarity, you basically have to become part of the team. Yeah, I mean, the relationships you develop with with players and, and coaches are, I think some of it is, is just based on purely time that you put in. That's Alex Pruitt, current Sports Illustrated NHL writer and former Washington Capitals beat writer. Because you're around for 82 games, they get to know you, they get comfortable with you, you become a colleague, you become part of the work environment. And then some of it is, is if you don't need anything, it, it behooves you to just BS with the player, um, to just you know mess around and just kind of talk about, ask them about uh, their lives and their family and their hobbies and stuff like that. Um, because not everything is just about getting the quote that day that's gonna turn out a bunch of clicks or feeding the beast in that regard. You know that if you talk to a player and you invest uh, in a personal way that um, down the line that, you know, when you come to them and say, hey, I want to talk to you about, you know, a deeper topic or, um, hey, you know, I want to interview about something, interview you about something that's it's unrelated to hockey. It's about your personal life. It's about your family. It's about your background. There's that comfort level there. I, I think it's absolutely instrumental to, to doing the job. Beat reporting is named for the narrow scope of its coverage, like a cop walking his beat of a few blocks in the city but it might as well be called beat reporting for the toll it takes on the writers. Like the players themselves, the reporters end up consumed by their sport. I wasn't traveling with the team, but wherever they were going, I was going. I, I don't believe I missed a game that year, which would have been 41 home, 41 away during the regular season, and then 14 total in the playoffs. And I forget what the breakdown of that was. Um, plus eight preseason. So it was a hefty amount. And, you know, hockey travel, much like basketball, with a condensed schedule like that, there's, you know, there's a lot of back-to-backs. There's a lot of waking up early and, you know, having to go from, I don't know, Ottawa to Buffalo or something on a 6 a.m. flight because you're not going to make the morning skate unless you do. Um, I know there are some beat writers out there who, you know, their organizations will work out 
arrangements wherein they fly with the team um but we were entirely independent so you know i was i was flying commercial like the players would do in the old days reporters write stories at the end of the games and after practice and just before the games there are a lot of deadlines <laughs> it was probably a little ridiculous i think however many games they had a week let's say on average three to four games those that number of stories would go in the the print edition as gamers that would leave you know seven minus x number of stories in the in the print edition of our off day stories features that sort of thing and then generally two to three blog posts a day um, and those would be anything from uh, you know just quick injury updates to line up stuff to you know mini features that might not make it on the uh, in the print edition um, to pretty much whatever I wanted but it was a pretty hefty workload and they want to do even more beat writers love to see their seasons extended by deep playoff runs in a way they're the team's biggest fan when a team goes on a run like that for the beat writer I think it impacts you in two ways one is external that the more you write and the fewer teams or that are around, you're gonna have more eyeballs on you. If you're only one of two teams, you're covering one of two teams in the Stanley Cup final, that's all anybody in hockey is reading. They're reading about those two teams, they're reading those stories, and often they're gonna to go to the beat writer because that's the person who's been with them since day one. And, you know, just writing in the playoffs, I think, is, is a good exercise for anybody, especially on deadline, because, you, you know, you have to elevate your game. You have to step up. That's what people who, you know, I admire in journalism would tell me that, hey, it's playoff time. The bigger the event, the more pressure I think you feel on yourself or you put on yourself as a professional uh, to, to write to the moment. In the playoffs, the stories are manifest. Who has the advantage? What adjustments do coaches have to make? What are the fans doing? But most of the year isn't the playoffs, and determining what kind of story to write becomes more difficult. Some of the decisions are at heart, right? It's whatever the date is today, October 27th, we're in the middle of the World Series, probably gonna have the World Series figured fairly prominently in the next issue. That's John Wertheim, executive editor and senior writer at Sports Illustrated. At other times when you're writing about the, the pool hustler, the, the Hawaiian football team we, we featured this week in Sports Illustrated, that's less of a time-sensitive story. So I, I think part of it is a mix of sports. Part of it is a mix of geography. Part of it is a mix of writing and writing styles. It, it's a real balance. What goes on the cover of Sports Illustrated is a big deal. Recently, SI's cover on the NFL anthem protest got a ton of backlash for omitting Colin Kaepernick. It drove the conversation onwards. Athletes frame covers where they're featured, teams display them in lobbies. There's even a curse associated with adorning the front page. But honestly, anything can make the cover. And sometimes, it's gotten weird. There are no mediocre stories on darts or roller derby. If they're putting those stories, never mind on the cover, if you're putting a story on a rattlesnake derby in Sports Illustrated, you can bet it's a damn good story because that's, that's not getting in there if it's a C plus. Stories on darts and roller derby usually don't start out as stories about darts and roller derby. Even after pitching stories and getting to know players, writers often end up with a story completely different than the one they set out to get. Every assignment always morphs and they never quite turn out quite like you think it is when you're going in. And you'll learn something about a subject or you'll learn about a theme or the story will pivot. Uh, there have been all sorts of stories where you go out thinking it's X and it ends up being Y. I'm doing a story on Jason Williams who's a former NBA player who's who went through some rough times. Five years in state prison, 18 months to be served without parole. Good luck to you, Mr. Williams. 
And I go to visit him in, in South Florida, and he's essentially running rehab centers now, and he's he's dealing with his issues himself. And he says, hey, did you meet Randy? And I said, oh, Randy? Well, it turns out Randy was Randy Lanier. Oh, here they come. Bill Whittington, Randy Lanier. Couldn't have made it any closer than that. <laughs> who is the 1986 Indy 500 Rookie of the Year, who at the same time was financing his racing career by, by drug running and was a, a huge drug trafficker. Ends up going to jail for, for more than 20 years, recently released. And I so I, I went to South Florida for a Jason Williams story, and I end up, I mean, God bless Jason Williams, but I'm also thinking like, I got to stay an extra day and talk to Randy. That happens so often on stories that you run into other subjects or the story doesn't break quite the way you think. Someone you think is very sympathetic actually might have some darkness, someone who you're prepared to dislike, and you're going to write a hard-hitting story, you end up finding them very endearing. It's almost sort of an article of faith that the stories are, are going to break in, in strange ways. It's part of the fun and part of the unpredictability of this job, but it also makes it really tough. Compounding the toughness of the shifting storylines are the shifting mediums in which sports reporters work. Newspapers, magazines, even TV are yielding to social media and the internet. By the time you're listening, even this podcast might be obsolete. I love podcasts. Love. You love podcasts. Ten years from now, are we going to be laughing at podcasts? And I've been in enough of these meetings through the years with platforms and delivery systems that we would now laugh at. And some have survived and thrived, and others we're gonna we're gonna Mark Mark. I always say I always tell the story. You know how Mark Cuban made his money? Tech visionary. NBA franchise owner, you know, digital savant, he made his money on a program with Yahoo. I believe Yahoo bought it where you could listen to your favorite college basketball team. He went, I, I love Indiana basketball. How is it that I can't listen to their games? And there was a way you could use this newfangled contraption called the internet, broadcast.com, I think it was called, where you could listen in real time to the play-by-play -play calls when your favorite college basketball team played. In 2017, that, of course, is, is laughable. Um, you know, we, we can stream a Mongolian soccer game in real time if we wanted to. So, but that was at the time, that was a, you know, that, that was a nine-figure idea. And that's got Mark Cuban on his way. I, I tell that story just because some of the things we're doing now that seem innovative, we're going to laugh at. And other things, again, I think podcasting is great. I hope it sticks around. I don't know. I mean, podcasting is named for the I, you know, it's a portmanteau of you know, I, iPods don't exist. So, so the contraption that podcasts were named for ceases to exist, which tells you how fast things have changed. I think if you just stay flexible and recognize it may not be on a newspaper that arrives on your doorstep, may not even be in a magazine that ends up in your mailbox, but, but somehow, some way, people are willing to pay for quality storytelling. I think that's sort of the, uh, that's, that's what you tell yourself to have some sort of confidence you'll be able to make a living doing this. Sports reporting adapts. It changes along with the medium. And there are so many angles to attack the same craft. When people ask me about sports journalism and reporting, I, I always feel like you need like eight more levels of specificity. You say, I want to get into sports, and you say, great. That's like saying, I, I want to get into eating. With sports, you can come at this from so many angles. 
and what even even I mean, look at ESPN. What, what Jeremy Schaap's job is is in no way what Stephen A. Smith's job is. In no way is that what John Gruden, and in no way is that what Woj does. There are so many ways to do sports journalism, and they're different mediums, and they're different voices, and they're different skills you can bring to bear. I think one of the real beauties of sports media is there's not one way to get in. And I think one of the other beauties is that once you're in, you're not pigeonholed into just doing one thing. Ultimately, sports journalism is just telling stories. Not about the sports themselves necessarily, but about the people, about the culture, and the money, and the science that sports touches. Recently, there's been a backlash against sports journalists who look outside the box score. Their rallying cry? Stick to sports. But when you really dig in to find the truth, sports is a little bit of everything. I do not stick to sports. Um, I, I think it's an artificial construction. I think one of the beauties of sports is they have these great powers to explain. Powers to explain decision-making in psychology and geography and economics. I mean, the, the games are the games and stats are the stats, but the sports storytelling goes so far beyond what you see uh, when you check your phone for scores. I, I understand that sports for a lot of people are diversion and their escape, and they don't want politics and culture and, and controversy warming their way into, I just want to watch my damn game on Sunday. But inherently, I would encourage everyone, not just media, but I would encourage fans not to stick to sports because it's sports ability to, to contain so much and tell stories and have these powers to explain that, that make them so special. Special thanks for this week's episode goes out to John Wertheim, Albert Chen, and Alex Pruitt. If you like the podcast, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Even better, share it with your friends. It's through your kind words that the narrative grows, so we can keep putting out quality content. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And as always, for more on sports journalism and all narratives moving the world of sport, go to SI.com. SI.com.